I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today's episode of Shut Up, Evan is sponsored by my newest obsession, Explorer Cold Brew. As longtime listeners of this pod know, I am a lover of cold brew, but the astronomically high prices at Blank Street and Blue Bottle seek to end me. I've dabbled with bottled cold brews in the past, but never committed because they tend to feel watery. Anyone else feel that way? Until now. Explorer is top shelf cold brew, all specialty grade organic and fair trade coffee, craft brewed in small batches. It comes in four different caffeine levels. So you can have a low calf or a 99% caffeine free, or if you're like me, the full or extra caffeinated. The concentrate is much stronger than ready to drink cold brews, so you just mix a few ounces with as much water or milk as you see fit. Explorer Cold Brew, like this podcast, is proudly LGBTQ plus owned and operated. I mean, gays famously put iced coffee on the map. And this company donates a percentage of all sales to LGBTQ plus focused nonprofits like The Trevor Project. Shut Up Evan listeners can receive 20% off their order by using code ERK20 at checkout. That's ERK20. Go to explorercoldbrew.com to find out why all the girls, gays, and theys are turning to Explorer. Can I just ask? Shut up, Evan. I'm curious. Could you shut up, Evan? One thing I was thinking about. Shut up, Evan. So there are some rumors out there. Evan, shut Shut up. up. Is it okay if I just ask? Shut up, Evan. Okay, but can I just? Shut up, Evan. I didn't even say anything. Hi, good people. It's Evan Ross Katz, and you are listening to Shut Up, Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I'm joined once again by my co-host, my woman king, Sean Ross. Sean... Good afternoon. Hello, hello, hello. What have you been up to? A new Survivor season has started. Mm. For those Shut Up Evan listeners who are not listening to Drop Your Buffs, great time to start. It's true. Well, great time to start watching Survivor. I don't know about that, but great time to start listening to Drop Your Buffs. So Survivor's been taking up a lot of my life and podcasting about Survivor. Well, because you're also, for people that don't know, in addition to podcasting about Survivor season 44, you are podcasting about Survivor Australia Heroes versus Villains, which is airing concurrently. And I believe it's like, what, three episodes per week of just Australia. That's right. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. Australian Survivor, Wednesday night, U.S. Survivor. It really is, you know, my weekend is Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Yeah, it's a it's a lot. But I have to say, it's been very heartwarming to see how many people are talking about Australian Survivor this season. And it is truly incredible. So actually, if you're going to start watching Survivor, start there, not on 44. You were just texting me saying that you're annoyed with people that are starting there because they're missing out on... So this is an all-star season for people that don't know. I thought you were saying that you didn't want people. It's half all-stars. 
you were just texting me saying how annoyed you were that people were starting with this season. It's really tough because sometimes you get these seasons of reality TV that have returning people and you're like, well, it's incredible. It's almost always better than a regular season because you're invested in these people. And then you have people come into those because they're good seasons, but they're missing the backstory. And so you, I feel conflicted about it. I feel conflicted. I understand. Well, I have had a really exciting week. I am in Los Angeles right now. Sorry, I should have asked. <laughs> <laughs> How rude. No, it's okay. It's okay. You've got a lot going on with Survivor. I get it. Um, I am here in Los Angeles uh, profiling an actor for an upcoming feature in New York Magazine. And while here, I uh, got dinner on Thursday night with our friend Jennifer Coolidge. I say our friend because, Sean, you and I both... Our friends with Jennifer Coolidge. Yeah, I was friends with her once, yeah. I mean, you have an iconic interaction. Um, and on th- yesterday afternoon, I went and got lunch uh, for three hours with Sarah Michelle Gellar, which was wow, a real thrill. We've hung out before, but it's typically, she's, she's a mom. So we, typically it's like she's, you know, quick coffee, because she is like constantly on the go, whether it be like carpool or taking the kids to karate or dance. There's just like always a million things going on for her. But I got lucked out in that the kids had after school activities. And so we were able to kick it um, at the Beverly Hills Hotel. And uh, we really like got into the goss. Oh. <laughs> bleep, bleep, bleep. It, but but I, will, I will say one great thing about Sarah Michelle Gellar is like, she loves, I can say this very confidently because she does not listen to this podcast or any podcast. Um, she just like, is like loves to talk. I was going to say shit. It's not shit talk, but she loves the goss. Like she is deeply invested in celebrity culture in similar ways to you and I and many of our listeners. She likes to chat and come up with her theories. I will say they are trying to get her on The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. They're trying to get her to film, and uh, she's not budging on that. She's a little too good for that, no? Yes. Uh, However, Jamie Lee Curtis famously filmed the last season of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills and had an iconic sort of moment that is now ingrained in Housewives history. So... And also, like, Carney Wilson has been on Housewives before. Natalie Cole was on Real Housewives of New York. Like, we've had moments where, like, very A-list people pop up. So it would not be, like, a downward mobility for her. But I can understand from her perspective where, like, where she's at in her career, this is not the pursuit. She also strikes me as a very private person. And I think Housewives is distinctly, like, for the uh, unprivate. Yeah. Coolidge and I, we went to Sunset Tower Bar um, on the other night. And so we were seated, like, very, very close to Paul Mescal. Are you a Paul Mescal person? Yeah, I am. Me too. I have to say, I don't know anyone who I would really be starstruck by right now outside of, like, Zendaya, but I've been around her because I, I did a profile for last year. So like mm-hmm. even that's a little bit like been there, done that. The, I think the only person I can think of is like Timothy Chalamet and Paul Mescal. And I just was like completely twisted. But then I'm like Coolidge. I was like, you can be the, you know, the catalyst right now to like start mm-hmm. this conversation. Of course, she too, we're like two little schoolgirls sitting in the corner, unable to catch our breath because of like the sexiness of this man. So we didn't say anything. (laughs) I did get a very creepy, dimly lit photo of him, like, you know, a Demois-esque type photo. Um, And then, of course, as I have my camera up, the flash goes off. He turns around. um, Really a valiant moment for me. And the camera's on an iPad. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
So I'm not proud. You're the first person that ever spoke to me about After Sun. And like everybody's talking now. And you're the first one that brought it up. You're where I heard about it from. Well, I went to a screening of it actually and had the opportunity to chat with the director, Charlotte Wells, afterward. And I think because the movie is so much about this uh, father and his relationship with his daughter. And, you know, obviously I've had a lot of dad stuff in the last few months. And, and I remember my dad was quite sick when I saw the movie, so I felt a certain type of way at the time, and then blah, blah, blah. There's just nothing I can really compare it to. It just really feels like a meditation. It's funny, I was just telling Coolidge the plot of the film on the phone, and I was like, as I'm saying it out loud, I'm like, well, it's just about like a father and his daughter on vacation. If I mean, obviously there's some other things that happen, but then you don't really want to spoil it. I, I think this is the kind of movie, like, the less you know about it, the better. There isn't a big twist. No, no. There's things that pull it together, but I wouldn't say that there's something to be spoiled, but it's certainly the kind of movie that when you're talking to people about it, you're kind of like, literally, it's about a dad and a daughter on vacation. And, it's, and that's not a like that's not a great sell to people, but that's what the movie's about, but it's done so well. It reminds me, I, I like what I would compare it to, and I think I told you this was something like The Florida Project. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has elements of, say, the uh, Before Sunrise series yes. of sort of two people talking and just interacting. And it's a character study more so than some kind of like blockbuster with twists and turns. I would say if you want like a selling point, you get, you know, Paul Meskel's butt at one point in the film. I feel like that's like mm-hmm. the most obvious selling point. Um, but to what you were saying, like I do feel like there is an element of spoiler in that. And hey, I'm going to say it right now. So if you don't want a spoiler, jump ahead. But like it's a movie about addiction and about the web that that weaves in a person's life. I feel like it's a disservice to see the film knowing that. I don't think it is. You don't think it's a movie about addiction or you don't think it's a disservice? I don't think it's a disservice. I also don't think necessarily it's fully about addiction. Okay. I think it's about relationship and memory, a father-daughter relationship, and it's about how you remember relationships. Absolutely. We're aligned. We're aligned. Anyway, go see After Sun. It's available VOD. He <laughs> deserves the Academy Award for Best Actor, which he will not win. But how incredible that, like, his first major motion picture, he is an Academy Award nominee. He's an Emmy Award for his first ever television project. He just got an Olivier nomination for Streetcar Named Desire in the UK. I mean, like, the Paul... I was going to say Paul Mescal Assange. That's not the Assange, right? It's really his entry into this industry has just been met with so much acclaim and, and really deservingly so. And I, and I like his celebrity presence because I feel like he's not someone that's, like... Um, too interested in being a famous person. He seems more invested in the work. And I feel like we need more famous people that are less invested in being famous people. So VOD, After Sun, Normal People, uh, Paul Meskel, we love you. Speaking of things we love, I wanted us to gather today to talk about Ariana DeBose BAFTA rap. Uh, funny enough, people listening might be thinking, oh, like that happened 84 years ago. Um, why are we still talking about it? But I think that, one, I think it's a fun story to sort of like detail the machinations of how it all played out. And I think there's a there there by way of the velocity of this story and what it says about a joke's, like the length of a joke and how increasingly I feel like the internet, which you and I are a part of, I'm not, you know, saying we're outside of that, like how we can sort of like beat a dead horse 
in a way that like something that was like really, really fun can become unfun really quickly. Really quickly. But much in the way that this became iconography really quickly. I mean, I think by the time I woke up the next morning, it was like certifiably iconic. But but let's back up a moment. I'm wondering if you would indulge me in you and I doing a reading of the full rap. Now, for those that don't know, there's a section of the rap, like there's the sort of the canonical part of the rap at this point, which we'll, we'll, we'll read that. But there's uh, a before and an after. It's sort of like there's the buns and everyone's familiar with the meat. Um, so I figured we could just sort of do the full sandwich. And I'm wondering, do you, I think we can go back and forth here line by line. Are you down for that? Sure. <laughs> I didn't rehearse. I know I thought about t- telling you in advance, but I was like, knowing you, I was like, he'll rehearse or like he'll intellectualize it in a way. And I was like, let's just do it off the cuff. I think I think that's what Ariana would want. Okay. So shall we try this? Yeah. The category is Outstanding Debut. Charlotte Wells, We Love After Sun. Georgia Helene, Blue Jeans, The One. Elena Maya, The Teamworks Grand. Good luck to you, Katie Grand. Elect. Trick Holiday. Marie, girl, what a sleigh. Sandy Powell without fellowship. Costume queen, can you fix this zip? All the ladies in the room. Supporting and leading all here, I presume. Hong Cho, Dolly D. Carrie and Carrie with a C. Dame Emma, I'm so fond. Anna girl, you were great and blonde. Danielle D, you broke my heart. Michelle, I loved you from the start. Angela Bassett did the thing. Viola Davis, my woman king. Blanchett Kate, you're a genius. And Jamie Lee, you are all of us. One of us is here alone. All these queens, we need a bigger throne. House of BAFTA, the vibe is strong. Be true to you, you can't go wrong. Now. Wow, that was so white. (laughs) (laughs) You know, speaking of the life cycle of memes, one of my biggest fears in life is to become a meme. And putting myself in this situation, I'm sweating. Fair enough. He's literally sweating over here. Uh, I have to say, though, Obviously, there's the iconographic lines, Angela Bassett did the thing, Viola Davis, My Woman King. I really like House of BAFTA, the vibe is strong. Uh, and I also really like Marie Girl, what a slay. Do you have a favorite line from the the full rap? Yeah, I do. I really like the the grouping, the coupling of Hong Cho, Dolly D, Carrie, and Carrie with a C. It's punchy. There's a staccato rhythm to it. Like, I really lo- I love the delivery of that. So this happens at the BAFTAs on February 19th. Pretty immediately, the clip goes viral on social media and people are lit up. And the first thing that happens in the aftermath is that Ariana DeBose's Twitter is deactivated, um, which people immediately take to mean that she or her camp are aware of the conversation, which at that point is sort of more just like, what the fuck is this? And the understanding from people is, oh, she's deleted her Twitter because Mm -hmm. she is getting a lot of hate. And so this is the reaction that many people have when they receive hate online. And then pretty immediately, um, one of the producers of the BAFTA Awards gives a statement to Variety that night. I mean, again, speaking to the velocity of all of this, it's it's like such an event that like 
the, that night, the producer, rather than, you know, worrying about, you know, the actual awards at the show or like the show itself is like, no, 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 we need to respond to the internet uh, and people speaking out about this. He says, I think it's incredibly unfair, to be frank. I absolutely loved it. Everybody I've spoken with who was in the room absolutely loved it. She's a huge star. She was amazing. That rap section in the middle mentioning the women in the room was because it's been a great year for women in film, and we wanted to celebrate that. And here is a woman of color who is at the absolute top of her game, and she's opening the BAFTAs with a song that said so much on so many levels, which I think no one would dispute that. Much was said in that rap. Um, And so at that point, you go to bed on Sunday night, and like the belief is... From people, I think the general consensus is that people aren't sure about like what the intention was behind this. And the feeling is that like I went to bed on Sunday night with the understanding that like people are hating on Ariana and making fun of her. What when you when you first saw all of this, where did you immediately go with it? Oh, definitely thought this is cringe. This is embarrassing, but it's also not that big of a deal. And I did feel like when I saw that she had deleted her Twitter account, Mm -hmm. I thought immediate Streisand effect. I think it was nothing. It's going to blow over. It's the BAFTAs. Are there any big moments from the BAFTAs that like, of course, we have big moments at the Oscars and those those can have a life cycle of like a few weeks, even uh, if you think about the Will Smith, Chris Rock thing. Um, But this is the BAFTAs, right? It's not the same. There's not drama involved. It's just like, eh, it's maybe not the best put together song that was performed. Okay, let's move on. Also, we should add to this that like part of the response to all of this is that the BAFTAs decided to cut to every single person mentioned in the rap as they were mentioned. And something that Jamie Lee Curtis later said, which we'll get to, is that, like, that they did not know what the rap was going to be, and they did not know why all these cameras were set up on them. So despite the fact that like they were authentically reacting, which a lot of the reactions are... They're akin to when you see, have you ever seen that, like those photos of like Julianne Moore or Courtney Cox or Adele um, on the sidelines at like basketball games when they're like disassociating? Mm -hmm. The Julianne Moore one is my favorite. It's the reactions were sort of akin to that, where it just seemed like people were not displeased. I think that you you can read it in a lot of ways, but I think more than anything, just people caught off guard. I thought bewildered. Bewildered, yes, for sure. And especially tonally, there's just like this dissonance between. Ariana, who has like extreme enthusiastic musical theater energy, and then like Blanchett Kate, who is Blanchett Kate. You know what I mean? Like, there's distinctly not musical theater energy. And yet, it was also the BAFTAs that tweeted the video. I mean, it's it's interesting how these things happened because often with something like this that is being perceived as cringy or embarrassing, and we're putting it up to laugh at rather than to laugh with it's usually coming from a random twitter account that saw it right was screen recording it put it up there but no the baftas clipped this out and specifically clipped out the rap right uh they didn't include the singing before and the singing after they specifically clipped out the rap with the reactions and they tweeted it out the call was coming from inside the house and what a call it was so that sunday night 
Monday morning, The Guardian comes out with a piece um, in which they call the performance gormless. Are you familiar with that word? That was new for me. A new word for me. I like it though, gormless. It's it just, you know, it doesn't roll off the tongue, which I don't think it's meant to. Um, they called it deeply and unsettlingly confusing and one of the all-time great berserk musical performances ever seen. I'm not familiar with the word Gormless, but I am familiar with Stuart Heritage of The Guardian. Mm, why? Whose pop culture writing I really, really enjoy. Oh. And I think I know where he's coming from here. Fair. So this would continue with the narrative that people were not liking this performance. That like, again, at this point, she did the performance, deletes her Twitter, The Guardian comes out, calls it Gormless. And so I think the pervasive narrative is like, what the fuck? This is my point, is that I think, knowing the writing of Stuart Heritage, I feel that actually what he was doing was taking the first step towards acceptance of this. Because I think we are reading this as gormless, deeply unsettling, confusing, but he's writing it in a sense, if I, if I know my Stuart Heritage, it's that he's writing that that's not a bad thing. No, and I agree with you. And especially, too, that last line there, one of the all-time great berserk musical performances ever seen, That's that seems definitely like he's calling it great. The word great is in there. However, I do think, like, tonally, the how many people interpreted it, and unsurprisingly, was that he was obliterating her, which sure, I think sure. as you're saying, it's like it really, with with the correct read of it, it actually quite isn't. And I think that's why the story is so interesting is because there's confusion both in Ariana's tone and then like how it was received in the room and then like how we talk about it. So mm. at this point, it's sort of like a dark, darker story. And then interestingly, I post a carousel of memes because this really took off uh, in the meme space very quickly for obvious reasons. And at this point, Ariana's gone dark. She's no longer on social. I post this meme carousel. This is Monday morning or Monday afternoon, whatever. And Ariana comments uh, on my carousel saying, honestly, I love this. <laughs> and I'm not inserting myself into the narrative here on purpose, but just to say that was like seen as Ariana's like first and only statement about it which I think began the reframing process in how we talk about this story because at that point it was like Ariana's out, uh, you know, not, no longer on Twitter. She must be really upset about all of this. And that comment sort of indicated the fact that Ariana might be more in on it than we at first thought. Yeah, and that's a really important step because I think that the, the deleting the Twitter was a bad step. But the, the good step is to acknowledge it. Acknowledge and laugh along. And if you start to laugh along, others will laugh along with you. I always come back to one of my favorite musicals is the Stephen Sondheim, Julie Stein, Gypsy. And there's a moment towards the end of the show. It's the iconic scene between Rose and her daughter Louise. Louise at this point has begun stripping. And there's, you're sort of seeing the, uh, the power dynamic shift between them. And uh, Louise says to her mom, nobody laughs at me me because I laugh at me first. I'm paraphrasing because it's actually it's said better than that. But the idea <laughs> being that like exactly what you're saying here, which is that like if you can find the humor in it all, it takes the power away from everybody else, which is what this seemed to do. So then later that day, Ariana goes on a BBC podcast. This was pre-scheduled because I believe she was doing some concerts in the UK. So this was already planned, and smartly so. The interviewer asks her about this, framing it basically as like, this big moment took off on the internet. Like, what do you make of it? So it wasn't like given to her like, 
that as though she's the butt of the joke, which I think is really was good here because I, again, I think it allowed her. And again, she's processing all of this, you know, trying to, I imagine, figure out how she feels about it. Um, because again, her intention and what this moment became are not the same thing. So you have to give her a moment to sort of like, if we're calling this camp, she has to like get there because she wasn't creating camp, you know, I don't think at least. So she says on the podcast, that was the assignment. Come, Come celebrate, celebrate women. And I was like, absolutely. Yay. And we did that and it was fun. I'm not going to lie. I had a blast. <gasps> so awesome. And then I spent the rest of the night like, you know, cutting a rug with like uh, Emma Thompson. <gasps> like it was on. fabulous. And apparently gay Twitter seemed to like it. Yeah. So exactly. that's good. Thus began sort of like, okay, Ariana's in on it. We all have shifted our perspective on this to like, this is camp. We recognize moments like, you know, I, the most obvious being, uh, you know, John Travolta with Adele Dazeem in 2014, which again was like this catastrophic, you know, moment in, in the canon of award shows that, you know, quickly was just like iconographic. And then Adina Menzel's laughing about it. And it quickly becomes a fun moment and something that's far more memorable than had he just introduced Adina Menzel. And, and not for nothing, you could argue Adele Dazeem has more name recognition than Adina Menzel in some circles. Up there with Poot Lovato. Up there with Poot Lovato. So at that point, we get that statement. Where were you at with the story? Because it seemed sort of like we were good, right? It seemed to me that I went to bed on Sunday thinking what an embarrassing performance. And I woke up Monday along with the rest of the world with the so-called embarrassing performance stuck in my head and wanting to watch it over and over again. And overnight, that conversation had shifted to, wait, is this good? And then as she gets in on the joke, we're, it feels like we're allowed to enjoy it now and we can all enjoy it together. And so at that point, now it's a smash hit. Yeah. And this is a turnaround of less than 24 hours. Right. And I think one of the fun things within all of this is like, obviously the breakout moment is Angela Bassett did the thing, mm -hmm. but there's also the pronouncement of uh, Viola Davis, my woman King, which became mm -hmm. its thing. And then there was the Blanchette Kate, which mm -hmm. I think got people because the, uh, rhythmically there's no reason why it's not Kate Blanchett. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And then I think the Jamie Lee, you are all of us. I would say that Angela and the Jamie Lee were the moments that really took off because of their our effort as an, as a culture to try and discern meaning, but and also recognizing that because there's no meaning, we can give it any meaning we want, which giving people free reign on the internet is like the ultimate fun because there's a lot of creative people on the internet. Um, and at that point, it sort of was like, kind of, I thought it exploded in a really fun way at that point. This is Monday, and then I'm kind of like, okay, this was fun, we had a good time. As you pointed out, when was the last time we were talking about the BAFTAs? It felt like we were good to go. Then Wednesday night at, a, at her concert in Amsterdam, Lizzo, <laughs> during like a, a beat between songs, is talking to the audience and she does Angela Bassett did the thing. Angela Bassett did the thing. <laughs> that sort of, I think, gives it another life cycle because it signifies the fact that this isn't just something that is within the walls of social media. It's sort of permeating culture to the point that not only did Lizzo incorporate it into her concert, the reaction from the crowd, the screams and like excitement from the crowd, and this is a big, you know, uh, venue because it's Lizzo, um, sort of indicated the fact that like there's more gas in the tank of this joke. 
Yeah. But where were you at with it? This is Wednesday. This is, uh, so Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, this is three days after the fact. When a meme, because I'm, I'm thinking of this as a meme, and when it leaves the internet and enters real life, and a Lizzo concert is a great example of entering real life, that is truly the beginning of the end of a meme in my mind. Right. Because it has existed through all the cycles. And this life cycle is speeding up at an exponential rate. Because if you think back to the memes of the past, it would take a long time for something to get, uh, it, let's say, they, they often started on like 4chan or Reddit or something like that. Now they're more so starting on Twitter. And they'll start on Twitter, they'll migrate over to Instagram. You know, in the old days, it would be like a week later, it would start showing up on Facebook. And then your coworkers, your middle-aged coworkers would start sending it to you three weeks later as if it's a new thing that they've just seen. And so, and then it would start showing up around the office and people saying it. That cycle's now happening in the span of three days, which if you're lucky, like sometimes it's happening in two days, it feels like. And so it's breakneck speed. And here is, I think, the first big example of it showing up in real life at a Lizzo concert who is great, but is a little bit like veering into mom music at this point. So moms are paying attention to Lizzo and they're hearing this now it's it's already in that what would have been its third week life cycle you know like seven years ago or something so uh it, it, this was the beginning of the end for me that signaled okay it's permeated the internet there's nowhere it's leaked out of the internet and now it's in the real world and it's kind of over right at this point my only thought was if angela does something around it that was the only way in my mind that this could continue and yet the same day as the Lizzo clip, we get uh, Ariana's music director, Benjamin Rauhala, releasing rehearsal footage from the performance, which sort of is almost like Zapfruiter-esque in that like it gives us a new angle on this thing that we already love. There's uh, you know, m- multiple different versions of her saying it now and singing it, and there's something about her like delight in the rehearsals that... I have to be honest with you. This is not me being a conspiracist, although it is. I don't know if that is rehearsal footage. I something about <laughs> something about that video feels a little too wink in the eye on the nose. Yeah, where I'm like, and also it came out days later. This is Wednesday. Why wasn't this released in the height of the moment? Am I am I being crazy? Uh, I do think you're being a little crazy. I see where you're coming from. And if that's the case, bravo. Yeah, no. Incredible work to everybody involved. But I do really believe that that's rehearsal footage. I do like in the rehearsal footage video, you get uh, a little bit of a nuance in her saying, Hunjala Bassett, uh, which I really do like. I I definitely think the rehearsal footage was... I don't want to say it was life-affirming, but it did breathe a little bit more life into the joke for me. And then the next day, uh, we have Lizzo the day before, and then we have Adele. Um, During her Vegas concert, Adele is sitting at the piano. Um, She's talking to the audience, and she says, uh, although we did learn that Angela Bassett did the thing, didn't we? Although we did learn that Angela Bassett did the thing, didn't we? Everyone seems to know exactly what she's talking about. And this is, again, seemingly so niche. But in that moment, it affirms the fact that, like, no, this is no longer niche. And, you know, you've got Adele and Lizzo, two of the biggest musicians right now, acknowledging it. And at that point, again, it's sort of like, where do we go from here? 
Well, I'll tell you where we go from here. We go to the NAACP Image Awards, which happened the following weekend. Angela Bassett is being honored as the Entertainer of the Year. And so it's pretty much known that it's going to be, someone's going to ask her about it. It would be a missed opportunity to not. So she's asked about it on the red carpet. It's the first time she's speaking out about it. And she says, I DM'd, I DM'd her, her last, last night. night. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. I just wanted to make sure she was okay. And, uh, you know, because there's a lot of attention. And she is a-okay. It's a very diplomatic response, um, which is to say that she doesn't comment on the rap, but rather <laughs> on Ariana's mental health in the aftermath of the rap. Yeah. I don't think there was any intention of shade meant by it whatsoever. But, like, it is a very... Specific response. What did you, <laughs> what did you make of it? <laughs> Anytime like someone's response to something is like, I hope they're okay. Is is just sort of like, God bless her. Yeah, it's not great. I actually hadn't considered that angle. I thought, oh, it's just just yeah, she's she's acknowledging that it happened and that she's been in contact with Ariana since. So great. But now that you frame it in that way, that she's okay, it does sound like she was in a horrible accident. But it was just a rap on the BAFTAs. There's like a Southern expression, bless her heart. It's you're saying something kind, but in response to basically like, she's crazy, but we love her, which is sort of like what I inferred from that. But again, that's inference. It was pretty diplomatic. Then Angela gets up to accept her award, gets to the podium and responds immediately by saying, I guess Angela Bassett did the thing. <laughs> Roars from the applause because the moment seemingly comes full circle. It was exciting, I will admit. I have to be honest with you. I was hoping for that moment to come at the Academy Awards. Sure. Which are this week, this coming weekend, um, where Angela is likely going to pick up an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for Black Panther Wakanda Forever. I feel like that would have been such a fantastic button on the moment, specifically because... For people that don't know, when we say awards season, it's because there's like this order of awards and the BAFTAs are considered the, the, the Oscars of the UK. So for this moment to originate at the Oscars of the UK, it would feel like a great button on the moment to have it come full circle at the actual Oscars. Instead, we got it at the NAACP Image Awards. However, I'm glad to see we got the moment. Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves, because if there's one thing you can expect from the Oscars, it's beating a dead horse. Well, I was going to say, it's, it's yeah, it's quite likely we will get this again. But then there's a part of me that's like, does Angela Bassett want her moment at the Academy Awards to be, hmm. I, it might be very strategic on Angela's part to say, let's, you know, put a cap on this moment here. And so that I can go into the Academy Awards, in which it's going to be likely a very emotional moment. It's a, it'll be a huge win for her and a long time coming. Um, does she want to turn the moment? Because if she does say it at the Oscars, it becomes its own news cycle versus Angela Bassett won the award. Now, even if she doesn't say it, the headlines the next day, yeah, it's going to be Angela Bassett did the thing. Somebody on that stage, on that red carpet, they're going to be saying it. I would be surprised if there's not a recurring performance of some kind. 
So we do know that Ariana DeBose will be uh, presenting at the Academy Awards because she was a winner last year. And so winners present the following year. So if anything else, I think Ariana could be the one to to give this a moment. I do want to say briefly, I was invited to a party that Ariana DeBose is hosting, a dinner in Los Angeles, Oscar weekend. I am going to be in uh, uh, Austin for South by Southwest. And part of me is like, should I get on a plane and just like fly in for this dinner so I can just be like the roving reporter in the room to like walk up to her and like finally get some scoop here? Because I do think that there is like a postmortem about this that I would like to have with her after the fact to like walk through this with her. I don't think it would be like at that dinner. Um, And I will say I did invite her on the podcast today to talk about this and she left me on scene. Um, (laughs) But I don't blame her for that. (laughs) Well, look, I'm happy to bleach my hair and introduce myself as Evan Ross Katz at the dinner. Like, I'll go for you if you need boots on the ground. That would be nice. You would need a healthy amount of roots because, (laughs) uh, baby, these roots are coming through. So the last part of this, perhaps my favorite machination of the story, which uh, is Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, old, reliable Jamie Lee Curtis, who is at the PGA Awards on February 25th. She's asked about it. And this is clearly something that Jamie Lee is ready to speak on and has thoughts about. And Jamie Lee starts off by saying, I am unclear as As to what the the fuck fuck people are on about. And... For me, it was joyous, celebratory, sisterly, hot, spicy. And she is just so incredibly talented. She is a fantastic talent. These people should shut the fuck up, back the fuck off, and let this woman just shine her light. Because she is fantastic. No one delivers a fuck like Jamie Lee Curtis. You feel assaulted in a good way and uh that spawned its own life cycle of jamie lee curtis also this is the irony of like at all it's like then that became its own meme because you take that moment in which she says people should shut the fuck up back the fuck off and let this woman just shine her light that becomes now a meme when gay people on Twitter especially are talking about our Ava Maxes or you know our girlies that need defending from time to time that's now its own meme. <laughs> I feel like there is nobody in this world who is better at miscalibrating their response to a question than Miss Jamie Lee Curtis. Because at this point, as we've discussed, the world moved on and we've been celebrating this. So Jamie's response is to the t- gay Twitter of Sunday night of the BAFTAs. Right. And nobody clued her in that this is now, like, not only is it iconic, but it, it's it's almost in the history books. It's been so long in terms of this the life cycle of this meme. And... And we like, there is reverence for this performance. Right. We are letting her shine her light. But I do think it's worth saying that, like, if Jamie Lee feels this way about it, there are likely others that remain in this headspace about it that think that Ariana was bullied. She remains off of Twitter. Um, I agree with you. Like, if there's anyone that's sort of um, always a little bit in outer space, it's Jamie Lee. But I don't think she's alone in sort of, like, having this understanding of the moment as being, like, 
conf this confusion around why there is this life cycle here. But again, it's just that Jamie Lee brand of passion about it. You know, she could have just been like, yeah, I don't understand what all of like the hoopla is about. I thought it was like a great performance, but instead Jamie Lee's like ready to like throw down over those in dissent about it. To your point, yeah, there's 10 gay people left that are calling this, you know, as uh, not understanding this is like a great moment and think that this is, uh, what was the word from before? Gormless, you know? 10 people left in that camp. Well, she's gonna fight them. What does she use in Halloween? Is it a gun? It's a gun. Which Halloween? That's true. So before we wrap, I did just like sort of want to want to zoom out on all of this um, and talk about something that I think we got at at the beginning, which is sort of like the life cycle of a moment like this. And I think this is just such a unique instance because we, we've had moments like this before. I mean, I think you mentioned the slap earlier, and I think that's a great example of like- Totally. By the next day, it was, I was already exhausted by the discourse around it, even like seeing the image. But then there was a little bit of like ancillary beats to it, which was that like, you have like the Lupita Nyong'o reaction shot. Um, and so that sort of had some tentacles to it. This is an instance in which like there are so many tentacles from statements by the producer to the Lizzo and Adele, to the rehearsal footage, to Angela, to Jamie Lee. Um, that it, it it did really continue to like have a life cycle beyond just the moment that it happened. And yet there's something about even us having this conversation today where it's like, feels like we're doing a deep dive on World War II, where it's like, we're like really opening up history here. Well, what we haven't mentioned yet is that in the life cycle of the meme, like the final piece of that cycle is, is the resurgence of the meme which after some time, right, we've all had a moment away, we've stepped away, and you're able to come back and reinterpret and bring it back in another way, which will happen. I fear it's not going to be on Twitter's terms, which for me, like, that's where I would prefer that to happen is, like, you know, you step away for a few months and then somebody brings it back and you're LOLing. But I fear it's actually going to be because we're still in award season that at the Oscars, someone's really going to beat that dead horse. But, you know, give it give it a few months, give it a year, and there will be that resurgence, which is always a fun time. I mean, I feel like right now, the beats that are left are whatever is going to happen around it at the Oscars, whether it be Ariana acknowledging it, whether it be Angela, or also there's the potential that Jamie Lee picks up the Best Supporting Actress over Angela and make some mention of it, mm. which I, I, I don't see that being in Jamie Lee's trajectory, but there's that possibility. Um, and then I think the only beat left is that at some point, Ariana DeBose does some sort of press around some other project and is asked about it and potentially offers some sort of statement around it. Um, and yeah, and, and the one thing we still don't have clarity on from her is like the deactivation of the Twitter account. Um, she has not since reactivated it, but also there might be part of her that was like, hey, I've been wanting to do this for a long time, and this was a great moment to finally pull the trigger on this, because Twitter, if you are a famous person, um, pretty unforgiving. <laughs> um, even if you're beloved IRL, I mean, just look at like, Jamie Lee Curtis is a great example where it's like, we love Jamie Lee Curtis, but if you go on Twitter right now, it's like everyone's hoping she loses this Academy Award to Stephanie Hsu or to Angela Bassett. Um, despite the fact that we love Jamie Lee, we don't want her to win. 
it's not a place that we typically celebrate people. So I can understand her desire to get off of it. Yeah, I mean, I do think that in this instance, I think overall we're seeing these stories come and go more feverishly because we as a culture are just, we're so quick to consume, munch, and get rid of get rid of things. Like we, we the digestion period is sort of gone um, and it's sort of just like on to the next. I do think this is a unique instance in that like it, it got a lot from it, but I'm so exhausted by it to the point now where God bless these people, but I still have people in my DMs that will be like, oh, have you heard Mitch Farino made like a disco track of of Ariana's rap? Um, which I didn't love from the get-go, I'll be honest. I preferred T. Kyle's uh, version. But, uh, uh-huh. but also it's sort of like, in my mind, again, even us choosing to talk about this today, it's sort of like, wait, we're still talking about this? And yet... And again, I think this this goes, this is a sort of what Jamie Lee was getting to. It's like, there are still people out here that like either either still find this incredibly funny or not over it, um, or think the whole thing is like kind of offensive. Like think that the idea, like that think that there's a group of people, perhaps uh, me included, that have sort of like ridiculed this young woman whose only intention was to celebrate her peers. Since I have really gotten into TikTok in the past, few years i have become hyper aware of what i am putting out there as what i believe to be funny because also as i've been getting older i'm very conscious of not turning into a facebook mom and so i don't want to be that person that's hanging on to a joke for too long and it's totally like i don't know why i care but i do care and it's interesting because this joke is something like this is a millennial joke yeah Gen Z does not care about this rap. <laughs> they don't give a shit. Uh, partially, probably they don't give a shit about anybody who's nominated because they haven't grown up watching uh, these women in film. And also, it's just, it's not their style. And so that's fine. But like, I'm a very conscious of like, okay, I did, I do find this funny. I do find this funny, but I have to move on. And that, like, I'm, I'm sort of contributing to the problem of this like rapid life cycle of of not just memes, but content in general it's like a new album comes out you're with it for a week and we're on to the next thing a new film comes out a, a television series you have to binge it and then we're over it uh which is what which is why it's so nice that we had you know reflecting back on the white lotus this weekly schedule of being able to digest it is important and sometimes you have to be forced to but with these things they've taken on a life of their own it kind of makes me think about you know everything going on with pedro pascal right now who mm-hmm. i have to say like i'm very exhausted by the this press cycle of Pedro's, which, by the way, I have contributed to because I do stand. And yet there's a moment, actually, this is interesting. It was at the premiere of The Mandalorian where some reporter hands him thirsty tweets. They hand him a piece of paper with the, with the, uh, with the tweets on them. Pedro waits for like a long, prolonged beat. He's reading it. He finds it funny, you can tell. And then you see him making this decision to say, I am not going to make another meme right now by responding to this. He's like aware of what will happen no matter, even him just reading this, even whether or not he reacts to it, his mere reading of the thirst tweets is going to become a thing. By the way, a thing that I no doubt would capture and and repurpose and disseminate. Like, I get it. Like, hello, uh, it's me. I'm the problem. <laughs> um, and I could see him sort of making that decision not to do it because I imagine 
I, I think this might happen with someone like him where it's like he might be exhausted of his own omnipresence everywhere and yeah. realizing that he's in a place in his level of fame that no matter what he does or says, um, it's going to become a thing. So what's the best thing one can do if they want to get out of that? Not say the thing. Um, but even with Pedro, I'm a little bit just like, I'm exhausted. Even by this person that I like and that I like talking about and people seem to like talking about, it's exhausting um, when someone is just so in the spotlight. Um, so I think smartly so. Uh, I will be curious to see what happens with Ariana after the Oscars, um, whether, again, whether or not she keeps winking at this moment, she's done a ton of, like, Instagram posts and stories. It, it, she's definitely leaned into it in, in the aftermath, and I'm curious, if it goes away for long enough, is there a moment it can come back? I would guess Halloween, because the look, she's wearing this, like, pink look, and the hair is super specific, and obviously there's the Woman King pose. I think Halloween is when, because, you know, we're going to get a lot of Megans, M3gans, and I feel like the elevated M3gan is to be Ariana at the BAFTAs. Yeah, but Evan, there is so much time between now and Halloween for 15 more of these moments to happen. You think moments like this are that common? Not quite at this level. Not quite at this level, but the I don't know. I feel like the Halloween caution, that's a whole other discussion, but it's very, very short-sighted. It doesn't have like a lot of 2020 hindsight. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. It's got, they, they're looking for something in the last month or two. I'm just saying, if someone comes out with the Ariana for Halloween, I'm standing. But okay. I get it. I get what you're saying. It's like you at that point you're pulling from the archives, but that's sort of that's my sense of humor because at that point it's like moves into subversive. This will be one of the costumes they put the kids in on the Views Halloween special. Okay, I could be way down for that. I could be way down for that. But then also you got me thinking like imagining Joy recreating this moment, or more realistically, Sunny. Like, but too hyper specific for the View audience because again, to your point, this is a millennial joke. This is not a Gen X joke. It's getting there. Adele? Yeah, you're not wrong. Okay, I think this is the last time that I am going to mention this until the Oscars. Because <laughs> I was about to say it, like, I was like, I think I'm done. Because, you know, like, I retired six foot five Lee Pace because I was just sort of like, we've beaten this. Um, the only one I don't retire, uh, I oh, I used to do the Meryl Streep scream from Big Little Lies as a reaction all the time. I retired that. The one I refuse to retire is lensed instead of, like, photographed by for Instagram just because it's a single word. But I definitely try and keep, like, my ear to the ground as far as, like, when people are getting tired of a thing that I keep doing or keep saying and then sometimes, like, the antagonist in me is like, well, I'm going to keep doing it to piss people off. And then I'm sort of like, Evan, like, you know, go touch grass. Um, but I do, I did enjoy this, I have to say. I really got a lot of joy from this. I liked getting Ariana on my IG comment section. We've had a few DMs here and there. Just, you know, I'm on scene right now, but there was a time that we had a few responses back and forth. I would say this overall net good for the culture. Do you agree? Oh, agreed. Agreed. Totally agreed. And the scene may not last forever. Some people, you never know when a DM might come in. She's busy. She's planning the dinner. 
All right, Sean, you will report back. Uh, roving reporter Evan Ross Katz. Absolutely. With like the glasses and the nose and the fake mustache. Yeah. That's its own new cycle for me. <laughs> uh, I look forward to that. Uh, would love to hear people's thoughts on this. Like, I think this is a large, I think it's an interesting conversation. And I'm, I'm curious to see um, if the velocity will continue to accelerate around beats like this to the point where like something can't even be, like we can't even have fun for 24 hours. Glad we touched down on that. Wishing Ariana nothing but goodness. I for anyone if if there is someone listening to this that was amongst the the ten plus haters, um, I hope you feel silly. Watch your back because Jamie Lee is coming. And if Jamie Lee's coming, all of us are coming. Live in fear. All right, from one iconic singer to another. Uh, when we come back, I am sitting down with the sweet but psycho Ava Max. Today's Shut Up Evan is sponsored by Sunday Riley. I was going to say it's the beauty industry's best kept secret, but it's really no secret. Sunday Riley is the go-to brand for those who want great skin at a great value. I'm a huge fan of all of their products, even though my application process could use some refinement, but my current favorite of their offerings is their Good Jeans Lactic Acid Treatment. Good Jeans deeply exfoliates the dull surface of the skin for instant glow and radiance. As dull, dead surface cells are removed, clarity and smoothness are restored. No wonder it was listed as one of InStyle Magazine's best beauty buys of 2022. Go to sundayriley.com to check out Good Jeans as well as their full range of product offerings. That's sundayriley.com. Shut up, Evan. Ava Max, thank you so much for being here. So excited. You were having, I was going to say a banner year, Mm -hmm. banner years. I mean, this is just, this is really your time right now. How are you feeling today? Thank you. I cannot wait to go on tour and I'm just Happy to have diamonds and dance floors out in the world. And I think we, as listeners of this album, are happy that it's here. We are recording today on Valentine's Day. I woke up this morning, I remembered it was Valentine's Day, and then I turned to my partner, and then I realized that I didn't maybe remember enough because I didn't have anything prepared. Is Valentine's Day a significant day for you? I was due on Valentine's Day, so I always made it really, like, especially when I was in a relationship, made it a point that Valentine's Day is, like, one of my favorite holidays. Like, it's important. And it still is. Like, I think it's a really romantic holiday, and also two days after is my birthday, so it's kind of like... You know, like this whole time in February, like is almost like my favorite time of the year. I was just rewatching the Sex and the City movie this morning, as I am wont to do. Because I was thinking, I was like, you know, I was going to do like a something social media of like two people falling in love. And I was like, there's that line from the Sex and the City movie where Samantha says, I love you, but I love me more. Oh, and I was that's like, you good. know what? I was like, Valentine's Day can really be, it can be about one's partner, but it can really be just about self love. And so I think there's something in this quote unquote holiday for everyone. One thousand percent. Like I have bought myself chocolate before and I think I might buy myself chocolate at the airport today. That sounds good. Chocolate is good. I was at the gym this morning and one of the trainers was handing out chocolate after the workout, after his like group workout class. Was it dark was chocolate? Like, I'm not sure. I think it was lint, I want to say. Oh, wow. That's a good trainer. But I was, I was going to say this is very innovative because in my mind, I was like, you shouldn't be eating chocolate after a workout. And I was like, why shouldn't you be eating chocolate after a workout? Who makes the rules here? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, so you are here in addition for your concert. It's New York Fashion Week. I believe this is your third New York Fashion Week, if my research you know, rises to the occasion. How are you feeling about your New York Fashion Week? I know I've I've had some thoughts about this New York Fashion Week, but it's not about me. It's about you. How are you feeling about it? I've been slowly dabbling my feet in, you know, fashion, and it's really exciting because, um, you know, I was stuck in the studio basically 
my own choice <laughs> making music for years so I kind of just focused on making songs and and touring and now is the time where I'm just like I want to watch every fashion show like I love fashion and and I have the time to do it now so it's been really fun um meeting everybody I went to Tommy Hilfiger last night that was really really cool and I believe you went to the area show earlier this week correct mm -hmm. So for those that weren't in attendance, there was a theme of flies. And so there was buzzing all throughout, you Which know, from the crazy. time we arrived. Yeah. It took me a while to figure out the soundscape with regard. And then I saw the flies on the wall and it all connected once the once the runway came out. There's something about being at New York Fashion Week where there's a thrill to it, but it can also be quite overwhelming just because it's a room full of people, many of whom want to be seen and are there to gather a moment for themselves. And so as much as, and this is one of my larger issues with Fashion Week, whereas as much as it's about the designers and the clothing, it can become about people in attendance. Yeah. I've read past interviews with yours. You describe yourself as a hermit. No, I mean, I'm kind of a bit of both. Like most mm. of the time, yeah, I'm a hermit. But then sometimes like I want to be the life of the party, right? You know, it depends. I, I don't, it's not like all the time for me. Hello, this, you know, sweet but psycho. It's all of these dichotomies, right? It's like the idea that one can be two things. I feel like so many people place themselves into boxes. Yeah, you or, don't need to. Everybody has different um, emotions. I feel like that arise at different moments. I don't think we should put ourselves in one box. Mm. Yeah, I have these moments too, like you, where sometimes I go to these shows, I want to put my sunglasses on and not talk to anyone. And then other times you see someone you know, and then it emerges from you. And it's like, you know, we contain multitudes. <laughs> now, I was texting with a mutual friend of ours, Jake Wilson. And I said I to love him, him, what are some things that I should ask Ava Max that are not oh, things I'm that nervous. she's been asked before? <laughs> and the first thing he said, which I was like immediately like, okay, he said, she loves salami. And oh. I was like, what a great fact to give me. Um I love salami. I prefer prosciutto, if I'm being honest. You know what? what? I don't you? like prosciutto. You don't like prosciutto? No, I like mortadella. Oh, I love mortadella. Yeah. You can put that on anything. It can be its own sandwich, though, too. It's so good. I don't eat it a lot. I don't eat salami often anymore. I'm trying, you know, it's a new new year. I try not to eat salami at the box mm -hmm. all the time. I get it. But my fans know I love salami at the box, so... <laughs> <laughs> What is it about salami? It's just, it's great. It's protein. It's it's just cold. You can put it with cheese and crackers. Like, it's the best snack. Oh, I want some right now. I like those things that you can just open the refrigerator, open the cabinet, and have them. Now, are you someone that cooks? I like to cook, but I don't have time. And I'm not, you know, I'm not the best cook, but I could cook. What is, like, your dish that if you were, like, if it was a food competition, the dish that you're offering up is your entry into the competition? Oh, my goodness. I can make a bomb gluten-free. It doesn't have to be gluten-free, but I make gluten-free pasta, penne pasta with, like, a la vodka sauce mm. and chicken, and then I pepper it up a lot. Mm. Now, you're in New York right now. <laughs> we are a city known for good food. Have you been having good food while you've been here? Uh, I have. Uh, yes, yes, yes. I went to a place called Hutong, mm. Chinese. Mm. And apparently it was the first Michelin star in a restaurant in Hong Kong. And now it's in New York, but it's really tasty. So you're in a press cycle right now because you have this new album, right? And I'm always fascinated by the idea of a press cycle because mm -hmm. it means that you're going to be asked to speak about your art a lot. And I imagine asked a lot of the same questions. Yes. And I can imagine that can be frustrating. <laughs> I always think about this too with like movie actors with their new films. But at the same time, it's like you can understand why the people are asking the questions because they want to know. How do you sort of handle that when you're sort of like, you've been asked the question before, 
you want to seem entertained, but I think that people increasingly ask a lot of the same questions to people over and over. I try to give kind of a different variation. I don't want to be like, you know, giving the same answer every time, but the truth is the truth and how I made the song is the truth and it's kind of going to be the same answer. Yeah. So you are someone who, like me, pop stars were a huge part of your formative years. I don't know what it was, but it's like I saw the musical landscape and I zoomed in on pop stars and I was like, that's it for me. And it was the music, but it was so much more than that. It was the allure of the pop star. And I know you're a big fan of so many of these 90s pop stars, as am I. Do you remember that period when you first started to fall in love with the idea of pop star? Yeah, definitely. When I listened to Britney Spears, um, I had the pink CD and the blue. Like, Britney changed my life. For sure. Yeah. But as did she did for everybody. Everyone in a different way, because it's like a lot of us listened to that and we were like, we love this. You listened to it and you were like, I want to make this. I want to be this. Perhaps I don't want to put that. I mean, oh, yeah. yeah, 1000 percent. I would gather up all my brother's soccer trophies on his bed. There's actually video footage of me pretending I was winning Grammys at like eight years old, but then with a Britney Spears song in the background. <laughs> I feel like we had to work a little bit harder to be fans at our age because there weren't things like YouTube back then. We did have to. Yeah, you had to go out and buy a CD. You had to put money down. And, and commit yourself to this artist in a different way. And I think it created a different connection that many of us felt. And that's something I'm very fascinated by with fandom today because it's easier to be a fan. And I grew up at a time where it's like, you had to work to be a fan. Mm-hmm, 1,000%. I remember like it was yesterday being in the car with my dad and just going through the CD book and just like, what do I want to listen to today yes. in the car? I remember going on road trips and like with friends and we'd all have our various CD books and it would kind of be like, well, who's got the better book? Yeah, because some people would like some of my friends had just like a whole book of rock music. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, eh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, what about my pop book yeah. with Whitney Houston, mm-hmm. Mariah Carey, Celine Dion, Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera. Like I had NSYNC, Backstreet Boys. <laughs> And I remember I had friends that would organize them. So it'd be like Britney's discography in order. Oh, really? And it was just, I mean, that's when, you know, you're a gay person. When it's like they not only have all the pop hits, but they've got them all wow. synced up. Yeah, it was very, very impressive. Um, how do you decide with this stage of your career how to let people in? You know, I've been listening to a lot of interviews recently. Who was it? I think it was Reese Witherspoon. And she was asked by Gail King in an interview, how do you make new friends at this stage of your life? Obviously, they're much older than than you and I. But what they were talking about was this idea of when you achieve a certain level of fame, people want in for often, not always, the wrong reasons. And as you go through this, I imagine, you know, you have your friends from way back when, but like anyone in life, you make new friends along the journey. But how do you decide when someone has the right intentions, when the friendship is genuine? I think I try and do the best I can to judge in a very, you know, nice way where I don't want to judge people right away, right? Like, I can judge them maybe if they do something wrong. And then I'm just like, okay, I can't trust that person, right? And I love making friends. I am not one to be alone a lot. So it, it can be dangerous, you're right, if someone has bad intentions. Do you feel like you have a bat signal, though, when you can tell someone's got those bad intentions? I'm very intuitive. Mm. Yeah. I just walk away. (laughs) That makes sense. I'm just like, so nice to meet you. And then I'm like, oh, my God, there's my friend back there. Talk to you later. Yeah, talk to you later. I know you moved to L.A. at 14, but I'm kind of interested in life before you moved there. How would you describe your younger self? Goofy. Out of all my friends growing up, I was the one like cracking the jokes. Like I was the one being psychotic and crazy and 
wanting to go on spontaneous trips, running away from home. Like, all, I'm like, you want to just all leave home for like a week and like terrify our parents? Like, I, I was crazy. <laughs> my poor parents, my mom would just call me all the time at like three in the morning. Where are you? I'm like, I'm at a friend's house. What are you doing? Like, leave me alone. Like, I just wanted to be left alone. The moment I like got my driver's license, I was like, I'm out of here. I, I just, I wanted to drive and drive and drive. That's one thing I miss about living here is that experience of just being able to get in the car and just go. I do get that a little bit with bike riding now, yeah. but it's not the same joy. Mm-mm. It's just like cruising down, especially the Yeah, so imagine like being a rebel, getting your driver's license. Like I felt like, oh my God, I felt like a free bird. I was just mm. so happy. I'm like, what have I been doing my whole life? Yeah, <laughs> there's that freedom that opens up when you get in the car, suddenly you can drive. I think for me, it's like I remember my town was so small and then the world became so much bigger because, you know, obviously I had traveled a little bit before, but there's something about suddenly realizing that mm. you have the capability to go wherever. Yeah. And it was weird just driving for the first time, too. I felt like really creative in the car. Like I had so many ideas. I was by myself and it was just such a creative mm. outlet for me to just be by myself in my car. I imagine part of that creativity was like the beginning of songwriting, no? I mean, at 14, it was a little sooner than that, but I, I definitely started songwriting when I took a trip to Miami with a songwriter who kind of like taught me the structure of songwriting because I didn't really understand it. I was just like writing poems and writing like like cute little, you know, paragraphs and, and, and then put, not even putting melodies together with it. So I went to Miami um, with a family friend who's a songwriter for like a week and we wrote like six songs. That was the first time I started writing at 14 and I fell in love. And that's when I started becoming obsessed with being in the studio. I wanted to just be in the studio making music. So you go to Miami at 14 But before that, it's like, when did it turn from this is something that I enjoy doing? Because I think it's fair to say a lot of people when they're in their teens start humming out melodies and and, but we're not all songwriters like you are. So when did you start to realize this is not just like something I'm interested in? This is something worth pursuing. Um, I always wanted to sing. Like, I always sang. So that was, like, already a thing. Like, since I was eight years old, I wanted to just perform. And I would I would do singing competitions. But when I f- discovered songwriting at 14, I was just like, wait, like, this is a whole different ballgame. Like, I could create my own melodies. I can, oh, my God, I can write about what I want to write about. And it was just so cool. My first song that I ever wrote in Miami was called Treat Me Like a Lady. And I was 14. My second one was Dream Away. Really, really, really bad titles. Uh. But, you know, you could tell the female empowerment was kicking in. Uh (laughs) Even though you're at 14, it's like your creative, like, mind almost not your specifically just the creative mind works yeah. without the parameters of age and you suddenly can like mature in ways through that element of self-expression yeah i always joke i'm like i was an old soul and now i'm a young soul mm. i'm like getting dumber <laughs> <laughs> i swear i swear i'd like every year that passes i'm just like wow at 14 i felt like i was like a 45 year old who had experienced like crazy heartbreak and why would I write a song called Treat Me Like a Lady? Mm. An R&B soul record that was called Treat Me Like a Lady. And now I'm now I'm just like nah I'm just I, you know I don't even like I feel like I'm a young soul now. Mm. It's like I'm, I'm I feel like almost like Benjamin Button but female version. <laughs> yeah. A good film. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know but I imagine leaving home at 14 to go on this trip 
I, I, yeah, it's just something I have no imagination around. We took a road trip as a family. Okay, then, so you were with your family. Yeah, and okay. my brother had a friend who was in the music industry in, in Florida. He was like, my, my first name is Amanda. I don't know if you knew that, but he was like, Amanda, we got to go. We got to go to Florida. You got to experience like being in the studio. And I'm like, I agree. I'm like, I've, I want to be in the studio too. And I had been in studios in Virginia before, but... Not with anyone who maybe I could learn from, you know? So I, I really wanted to collaborate with somebody. So this one was a family friend. So we went down, started writing music, and it was just, it was life-changing, writing lyrics and melodies. Can you talk about that process? Because, you know, I watch a lot of documentaries about artists, and they talk about going into the studio. And then all of a sudden, the scene cuts to them, and all of a sudden, they have this hit record. And I'm just curious, like, more around what happens in the studio, how the ideation process works. I know that Taylor Swift did some of these, like, songwriting sessions on one of the albums. And I found it fascinating watching, hearing her, like, hum out these songs before they were fully formed. And I'm wondering for you with your process, so you're suddenly in the room, the door closes. How does the process, that creative process, begin? Um, it's different every time. You're saying now? Even then or now. Like the other day I was at dinner with my friends and I had an idea and I had to like pause and I just like, like had an idea for my third album the other night. And I was like, why did this just come to me at dinner randomly? I just put out my second album. Why am I? So I just like randomly have ideas that come to me that I don't want to force, right? So I'm not forcing these ideas. But when I get one, I write it down. Always. And then, or if it's a melody, I, I sing it into my voice note. So I have like these different ideas that come to me. But then also when I'm in the studio, my favorite thing to do is not listen to the beat. I want to hear it once I'm in the booth. I want to go right into it and see what melodies come out. Because I think I, I believe in what's like meant to be too. So that's how I write a lot, my melodies. Like that's how Maybe You're the Problem was born. I just sang that melody and the lyrics of the chorus just randomly in one take. That's the song I've been bopping to the most lately. Uh, First of all, are you listening to your own discography? Right now, I'm really loving Dancing's Done. Ghost, I love Ghost. Sleepwalker. Those three are my favorite right now. And then do you vacillate between others? So I yeah. do, especially because I hadn't listened to my own album in a minute. And now that it's out and it's everywhere, I'm just like, okay, wow, I forgot how good these songs are because, because I stopped listening to them for like a couple months. That to me is like the most interesting part of these creative processes where it's like you make this thing and it's yours and yours alone. And you put it in the back burner for a second. Yeah. And you know it's coming out. To everyone else, it's like this brand new brand thing, new thing yeah. that you've known about for so long. But the songs are just so different to me. They mean different things every few months because I, you know, as we're we're living, we go through things, right? In our personal lives. And each song resonates to me differently now every few months because I'm going through different things. You know, I'm dating. And so it's very different for me. From what I heard you talk about, this particular album was way more a reflection of your personal life. Is it fair to say that the first album was less personal? Or like, how, how do you think about that first album? It wasn't less personal. It was more so not about my relationships, like with men. Mm. <laughs> but um, the first album was more about coming up in the industry. Like, for instance, Who's Laughing Now was about everyone doubting me. 
because I had moved to California after recording Miami at 14 and no one wanted to sign me. No one wanted to work with me. Um, even when I moved back to L.A. when I was 17, it was just like closed door in my face. But then I started putting music out on SoundCloud and then I got signed and then Sweet But Psycho happened. So I think for me, Who's Laughing Now, part of heaven and hell is really just about coming up in the industry and looking back at everybody that wanted to push me down. Between 14 and 17, that's a really formative age for anyone. And it's hard to face rejection at any age. It's especially hard to face rejection at that time. And especially at something that you're so passionate about that you clearly know you're good at. And I'm wondering, were you able to separate out that rejection and not make it feel like it was a rejection of you as a person? It fucked me up. This is real talk. Like, I was really down a lot. I, I went from job to job to job. I was like, my parents were just like struggling. And then because, you know, we had moved to California and they pretty much quit their jobs and supported me full time and started struggling. And then I got, I had to get a job and make money and still try and make it as a singer in LA. So it was, it was a tough time. There's a Chateau Marmont component to this, right? You went at one point, you linked up with the producer. Yes. This goes back to that thing of like, I don't want to make you say the thing you've done in a hundred other no, interviews. No, 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 I mean, you know, I mean, when I started working with Circuit, it was like magical, right? It was like, almost like we were meant to work together, right? A long time ago. And it's weird because I knew all of everyone he worked with. You know, I grew up um, in VA with Jay Cash, who was a songwriter who also knew Circuit at the time, but I never knew Circuit. I knew Ammo. I worked with Ammo. He's also a great, great big producer, a huge producer, hit producer. Still didn't know Circuit. I met Circuit on my own out randomly one night at Chateau Marmont. How random is that? And he goes, I know your brother. Oh, I know everybody you know, but I didn't know you. And I'm like, and I didn't know you either. And then, you know, I sang him happy birthday. It was his birthday. We were having a good time. His friends were just like, someone sing him happy birthday. My friend's like, this girl's a singer. I'm like, oh, am I? Okay, I guess I'll sing happy birthday. <laughs> oh, am I? <laughs> yeah, so I know. So I sang it. I sang it twice for him. It wasn't Marilyn Monroe enough the first time. Mm, he wanted it more Marilyn. <laughs> Not him, his friends. Oh, his friends. He was quiet and shy at the time when I met him. Got it. <laughs> For those that don't know, I mean, his writing credits include Rihanna, Brittany, Nikki. With I the mean, Weeknd, yeah, Starboy. His Wikipedia is one of those ones where you just, you, oh, it no, just yeah. keep scrolling. He is the hardest working person I know. He, I mean, he works nonstop. And so when you linked up with him, <laughs> you have that night, two rounds of happy birthday, a friendship forms, you eventually get in the studio did it click for you right away? That right this away. Was, okay, so you knew. Right away. The moment we started working together, we were just like, oh my God. Like the first song we put out, we put on on SoundCloud. And we started getting recognized by record labels. Literally every single record label. Some through email, some in person. It was instant. It was almost like fate. And how do you find that balance? It's like, obviously, he's got this illustrious resume. <laughs> and you're young at this time. But you have a conviction about you. You know you're good. Oh, yeah. You have a point of view. How do you go up against someone who, like, I imagine there's just times like that where it's like he can be like, well, I know better because I've done this before. How do you sort of hold your ground on stuff? I trust his opinion. He's taught me a lot. He knows a lot. And I think we collaborate very well. So you guys link up. You start making music together. I get signed. Then he starts executive producing Heaven and Hell. And Sweet But Psycho was born. And boom. It came out and did what it did. And we actually went on tour together, Henry and I. So... He came on tour and he kind of just stopped working for like a year mm. and was just experiencing tour life with me. We were recording and finishing Heaven and Hell in closets and hotel rooms 
How crazy. Mm. <laughs> so once Sweet But Psycho comes out and you start to experience this like meteoric rise, you know, you're talking about your family earlier, right? How they came out to LA to support you and it took you a while to find that that momentum. What was that like for them to see these dreams? It sounds like they really backed and believed in your talents from the jump. What was it like for you to see them getting to experience this moment with you? It was everything, you know? I. I do it all for my family at the end of the day and like and and now my fans I think I don't see the point in doing something if you don't want to give right I think giving is the number one thing you got to have a higher purpose if that makes sense totally and I think that's why it happened for me because I genuinely do have a higher purpose and I feel it and I know that it's not just about how much I love to sing no, I want to give back. Like I want to, I want to give to everyone. I I love people, and I, anytime I see anyone struggling, I just want to help them. <laughs> mm. You know, I think because I remember when I was struggling. It's not fun to struggle, but I imagine it builds a stamina in you and a, a perseverance. Do you feel like if you could go back and do it again, would you do it differently, or you think it was all laid out as it should be? Everything I think was meant to be. Looking back now, mm. as hard as it was, it built me to be. A little bit stronger I think you know this business is hard you have to have a strong backbone and mine was just building up things happen when they're supposed to everyone has a different journey right so looking at sweet but psycho specifically for a moment I'm really fascinated by the opening of that song and the scream as a lover of pop music I feel this is my opinion a lot of music today doesn't grab you from the jump as much as the hits of the past used to. I think about, for instance, we were talking about Britney earlier, those opening chords of Baby One More Time. You hear that and you're immediately transported, yeah. <laughs> right? And you have that with Sweet But Psycho. You put this scream at the beginning of the song to like level set the fact that you are in it. And uh -huh. I'm just wondering about that specific creative decision because Every time it comes on shuffle, it's like I'm back in it. So you know how that happened? Actually, this is funny. I've never, I don't think I've ever explained that. So um, we were in the studio and I actually did scream, but we didn't use my scream. But I screamed at the very beginning because I was so excited about the song, like almost being done. It was almost towards the end of the song that we added that. Um, and so I screamed naturally in it and then he added the scream. He was just like, okay, we're going to actually find a better scream than your scream, mm. but we're going to put the scream in. <laughs> <laughs> and what's that like for you? So it's now been, what, five years since the song came out? Is that right? Four or five Four, or yeah. And you're still singing it, right? And it's like, and this I is- I love that record still to this day. I was going to say, this is going to be something fans are going to want from you till the end of time. And I've heard some artists talk about, gosh, I wish that song wasn't so big because I don't want to have to keep performing it. But I, I imagine from what you just said, it's like this is one of those. I ones. don't take that for granted at all. I love that record. So as that record comes out, your public image rises as well. And that's the part. It's like, you know, you can train your whole life. Uh, you can take voice lessons. You can spend hours in the studio. What was the beginning, though, of like the public self like for you? The idea that your fans are not just going to be interested in your music. They're going to want to know you. And I feel like that's just the part of the entertainment industry that it comes. And then there's this expectation that. People want to know you and you have an image. And that's what I really wasn't properly prepared for. And I think even to this day, I kind of just don't like that part of it. The fame. 
I love dressing up. I love fashion. I don't like the camera and lights. <laughs> I get it. Then early on, there comes this fascination with your hair. Yeah. And I'm wondering what that was like for you. That's this first example of like this thing, again, totally separate from the music that you're creating, your passion, this thing you've worked for. And then people become obsessed with this thing, this facet of you that is separate from all that, yeah. but connected somehow. I'm wondering what it was like for you to watch this play out. I remember when I cut my hair like that and it was just everyone around me, one, started looking at me differently. Like, and I thought it was very strange. I'm like, just because of a haircut? Oh, you think, some people think I'm weird. Some people don't like the haircut. Some people love the haircut. It was very polarizing. And I think that's when I was just like feeling more like myself. I was like, wait, when I cut my hair like that, I've, I, you know, that was the first time I ever felt like me. And I was like, I think I found myself. And that's why I kept it for so long because I did really feel like it resonated with my soul because I did want to have my cake and eat it too. I did want to have short hair and long hair at the same time. I did feel split in two. I really did feel sweet but psycho. It was so polarizing to people. Something as simple as a hairdo. but And yet, and yet here we are talking about it. That just shows that you should just do what you want to do. Mm. That's the number one message of mm. that haircut. So you have Sweet But Psycho and then, you know, the accompanying album that blows up and then COVID happens. And I'm really fascinated by conversations around COVID right now because it feels so, I can only speak for myself, it feels so in the rear view. I still can't believe that happened. I still can't believe that happened either. And how little we've sort of talked about the mental health implications of this and how much our world has changed. And I'm just wondering from the artistic perspective, you're in this, you know, your career is taking off and then COVID happens. The great thing about being an artist like yourself is that you can go into the studio throughout COVID and make music. It doesn't halt the art form in any way, but it does change the ability to be out on the road and to interact with your fans and to be out promoting the music. What was that like for you? And I'm talking like March 2020. What was that like? You know, it was crazy because Kings and Queens at the time was blowing up and I was just like, wow, I am in my house, and so is everyone else, and the world shut down. Just was chilling, watching TV shows, just like everyone else. But it was a lot longer than everyone expected, I think. Yeah. It didn't just hurt artists, it hurt everyone, you know? Uh, mentally, with their careers, right. emotionally, spiritually. I feel like everyone got a little messed up, but we I guess we were all in it together. Yeah, we all got, we all got messed up together. There's something to be said about that. You know, you mentioned during COVID, you're watching TV shows. What do you like to watch? Are you a reality television person? Are you reality competition? I can watch a little bit of everything, to be honest. I like documentaries. I like White Lotus. I love White Lotus. I love a little bit of uh, Selling Sunset. For when I don't want to think about anything, I just put on Selling Sunset. I do enjoy some Selling Sunset. I am curious where they're going to go from here because I feel like with Christine gone. I love Christine. She's right, a friend of mine. Right. I was like, I'm not sure because she sort of is the show in so yeah. many ways. Yes. But I feel like sky's the limit for her. Now, going back. Okay. You mentioned White Lotus. Uh, where do you want to see? You know, White Lotus is a big topic on this podcast. Really? And we've had just about every cast member from the show on. We have more coming up in a few weeks. Um, Where do you want to see the show go for season three? There's been a lot of talk about, you know, which cast members people want to see come back. Do you have any, if you were to prognosticate? I love it when they bring in a whole new cast, but maybe bring in Jennifer. You want to see her back? I do want to see her back somehow. Like, can she come back as a ghost or something? That's an option. Because she's so funny. 
So if you had to choose between Jennifer Coolidge as a ghost or Jennifer Coolidge as a new character altogether. A new character. Okay, so but both let's keep both on the table. But I like both. I just want I just want Jennifer. You know, there's been a lot of public outcry in the wake of the Pamela Anderson documentary and the accompanying book about people wanting her on White Lotus as a sister to Tanya that comes in to investigate her murder. I kind of love that. I've never heard that, but I think that would be fantastic. Have you checked out Pamela's uh, documentary yet? No, not yet. Okay. I just told my best friend that I want to watch that. I think that her documentary has the power to change the world. Really? I do. Okay, I'm going to watch it. There's something about um, her perseverance that I find, yeah, just remarkable. Okay. Okay, so- I love that. (laughs) No, I do. White Lotus, uh, Selling Sunset, but are there other shows, dramas, or comedies that you're into? Um, You know, I was into Ozark, that was very dark for a mm, second. Very there. dark. But uh, that was during a dark period of my life. <laughs> <laughs> you were like, I'm feeling dark, so I'm going to Dead go to me. I was obsessed with Dead, dead to, to Me. Dead to Me is so good. I'm so sad it's over. Um, what else? I love, like, I used to be obsessed with Desperate Housewives. Like, you know those, oh. like, I used to be obsessed. You're speaking my language. I used to be obsessed with Gossip Girl, of course. I used yes. to be obsessed with, I used to be obsessed with um, Dynasty. But not, oh. but not all the end. But, like, I like the be- more the beginning episodes. I feel like Desperate Housewives is not referenced I like the drama, culture. like a small town drama. Mm-hmm. I love That's my absolute favorite. Big Little Lies, Big Little Lies. I mean, I die for a Nicole Kidman show. If Nicole Kimmins is in it, I'm watching. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so I just went back and rewatched Big Little Lies season one. Because I wanted to wash out the taste of season two, if I'm being honest. Ugh. And my God, what a great rewatch. And yeah. Nicole Kidman's acting. I'm not good at rewatching things. I find it comforting. See, okay, I like to rewatch movies. Okay. But shows, I don't know why it kind of like makes me cringe to rewatch it for myself because I'm just like, oh my God, why am I rewatching a show? It's, it's like, a commitment. It drives me crazy. But a movie, I'll rewatch over and over again. Because I watch a lot of things over again just in the background. I'll have them on. Are you someone that can have a TV on while doing other stuff? Or you're like, I'm sitting at the TV, I'm watching TV? No, I can have it on actually. Yeah. Because that's how I rewatch a lot of my stuff is like, okay. I just put it on. I like that. Sex in the City, obviously, too. I mean, who doesn't watch Sex Always, always. However, I like to watch seasons like one and two a lot because I feel like people over-reference the back end of the show. Really? And I feel like I really like when the show was like finding its footing. I like that. Now, do you see any acting for yourself in the future? Is that something you've thought about at all? I mean, it is, you know, looking at the trajectory of so many of our pop stars, you know, thinking about Britney and Crossroads, Christina in the incredibly underrated burlesque. Oh, so good. So good. Do you, is that something that is of interest to you? Of course. I love acting. I act in all my music videos all of the time. I mean, are. I love I love acting. I love telling a story. Maybe something with you and Nicole Kidman. I know exactly what I want to do, but I I want to keep it a surprise. <laughs> okay, fair enough. We'll take it. You know, you just did this show at Webster Hall a few days ago. Um, an overwhelming amount of gay people were there because gay people love you. We gay people, we love our pop stars. What do you think it is, from your perspective on the pop star side, what is it about, and like, I'm, I imagine the gay fans feed you in a particular way because we're fervent, we're loud, we show up. Um, what is it about the gays? I love making pop music. I love making dance music. And I think it's so important to speak about, like, for instance, one of my songs, So Am I, I, I remember getting so many DMs about just people coming out. And because of that song, to their families. And I, I was just like, wow, I can't believe my lyrics are doing this. So that's when I'm like, I understood the connection with So Am I. It's the best thing I could ever do, right? Influence in that way. 
So right. I'm just blessed, I feel like. I mean, I think about 2002, watching Christina Aguilera's beautiful video. Oh my God, I and, will never forget beautiful. And how deeply impactful that was. And again, it's like she was making something that spoke to the culture and gave people the agency to be themselves. I think it's super important that we help uplift each other. And I think, you know, lyrics can do so much. Absolutely. And save lives even. 1000%. Again, like I said, I get these crazy DMs. Like, I don't even want to go into a dark hole, but like DMs where they they, they wanted to die and then they didn't. You know, and I, it's even weird saying it because I can't even believe sometimes what I read. And um, music is music is life, you know? Yeah. But it's like, you know that intimately too from your early life of being a fan of this music. The biggest pop vocals, they changed my life. Mm. This is something I've talked about with several of the singers we've had on the show about your performing self versus your real self. And you sort of kick into a different version of yourself or a different person. It's like, it's obviously still me, but I feel like when that music starts, I feel like something else takes over. And I don't know how to explain it. I kind of black out on stage. And whatever I learned in rehearsal, whatever I learned choreography wise, sometimes I don't even do it because I, I just want I like to get lost in the moment and I want to feel the energy from the crowd and whatever energy I'm getting from the crowd is what they're mm. going to get, mm. essentially. So if I have a chiller crowd, I'm going to be a little more chill. I'm going to remember the choreography. If I have a crowd that's going crazy, I'm not going to remember anything and I'm going to go wild because <laughs> I feed off so much of the energy. What do you make of the current state of pop music on the whole? I mean, obviously, you are a constellation in this universe of pop music. We all are. We're all stardust. Mm. And obviously, you know, this has been a theme of this whole conversation is like the importance of pop music. And it's often, I'm sure you know this well, like not taken as seriously as other forms of music, despite the fact of, as we're talking about, it saves lives. What do you make of pop music in 2023? Everyone listening, make more pop music. <laughs> more pop music. Well, thank you so much. You are off now to the next city. I mean, obviously you're in the promotion mode for this show. You said that there are some voice memos with this third album. I don't want to put any rumors out Look, there. Look, all I gotta say is I'm I'm always making music. Always making music. <laughs> all right, well, congratulations on all your successes and I can't wait to see what's next. Thank you so much. All right, have a good one. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Evan. Shut up. Shut Up Evan is produced by me, Evan Ross Katz, with audio editing by Sophia Asmuth and social media by Griffin Dunn. Shout out to our Patreon subscribers for their financial support. And thank you to you all, the listeners, for helping us keep the lights on. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.